Would you please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31? Jeremiah chapter 31. And then you keep one finger there and let's turn also to Revelation chapter 21. So Jeremiah chapter 31 and then Revelation 21. And if you can, I'd like to stand. Here's the word of the Lord. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah, my instruction within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. You just saw the Lord calling Israel as his bride. I was their husband. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, you are in heaven. And we are men on earth. So help us to let our words be few. So that we may hear you speaking to us. I need your help. I desperately need your help, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would guide me, guard me, empower me. And the congregation also needs your help. As then prayed, I say, Amen. We are all beggars. But the beauty of the gospel is that we have a a very merciful and benevolent father who loves to give bread to their children. So, feed us this morning with your word. We pray for your churches here in Salem. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd be walking among your churches, visiting them, blessing those who are being faithful, disciplining, correcting, correcting, 
and judging those who are perverting your gospel. Help us as a local church to be faithful to you, I pray. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. Amen. So last Lord's Day, we started looking at the importance of covenants in the Bible, how the Bible is a covenantal document. I hope you remember that. And we're going to continue that same theme this morning. And I was thinking about the importance of covenants throughout church history. So if you think about the early church, the letters we have in the New Testament, so many of the problems were connected to how they understood the covenants. So for example, so many of the false teachers that we have, the Judaizers, they had a problem of interpreting the covenants. Think about the problem with the church in Rome. We have the weak and the strong. And issues related to the covenantal interpretation with the new covenant coming. So much of the New Testament, think about Acts 15. Remember Acts 15? That's the first church council. Why are they having that church council? How does the covenant is fulfilled in Christ and apply now that we have all these Gentiles joining the new covenant community? That's not only in the early church. Even today, so much of the divisions among Christians are actually derived from our understanding of the covenants in the scriptures. So, for example... We have Christians always debating the laws. Which laws should we keep from the Old Testament? Some will say just the Ten Commandments. Others will say just the moral laws. Others will say no, the moral and the civil laws. So then you have the theonomists. So, you see, it's all related to the covenantal interpretation of the Scriptures. Should the Christians keep the Sabbath? How should they keep the Sabbath if they should keep the Sabbath? Covenantal. Why do some Christian churches baptize unbelieving infants? That's their covenantal understanding of the progression of the scriptures. Think about why do some Christians believe in the rapture of the church? Covenantal understanding of the scriptures. Why some Christians see earthly or natural Israel as of vital importance and the problem of the land in Palestine and how we should support presidents who support Israel. Why? Because it's all connected to our interpretation of the covenants. So you see how the covenants have a profound implication on how we interpret the scriptures. And today I want to continue developing this theme. So last Lord's Day we start looking at the covenantal nature of the Bible. And then we look at the covenantal structure of the Bible's canon. So that's all we saw last Lord's Day. Today we're going to start the covenantal framework of the Bible's drama. And you see that might sound weird. You might not understand what the outline is, but hopefully we will become clear. So just as a review, last Lord's Day we saw the covenantal nature of the Bible, how the Bible itself not only talks about covenants, but the Bible is a covenantal document. Amen? 
Remember, even how we divide in Old and New Testament, and the word testament derives from the word covenant. The Bible, the Word of God, that's very important for us. The Word of God is covenantal in nature. He reveals Himself in order to rescue people and bring people into a covenantal relationship with Him. That's why we separate between the natural revelation and then the covenantal revelation or the special revelation. The natural revelation, right now you can look outside and you see the rain and the leaves and the birds. And as the Bible says, you've got to be very moronic and foolish to say there is no God who created that. But this natural revelation gives you information about God enough to condemn you, not to save you. You need a special revelation, a covenantal revelation. That's what the Bible is. And I have an example of the nature of the, the Scriptures as a covenantal document. When God speaks, it's covenantal. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Right there. It's a covenantal statement. He's declaring, I am the bread of life. And there's promise and curse. The promise of blessing is, if you come to Him, if you believe in Him, you will be satisfied you will hunger no more. You will thirst no more. But what happens if you don't come to Him? You will starve for eternity, spiritually. And the reason why He's speaking these words covenantally is to create a people for His worship. And that's how the passage ends in John chapter 6 with Peter. Remember, Jesus says, well, are, you, are, you, are you going to leave me also? And what does Peter say? Where else shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. Leads to worship. So you see the covenantal nature of the scriptures. We also saw the, the covenantal structure of the Bible's canon. How the Bible itself is structured as a covenantal document. And I'm not going to spend time here. I'm going to move to where we must begin today. The covenantal framework of the Bible's drama. So I would argue that the Bible is not only covenantal in nature, not only has a covenantal uh, structure as a document, but I would argue that the covenants actually keep the whole storyline of the Scriptures moving. Oh, I would say that the, the Bible has a covenantal framework in its main storyline. God's glorious drama of redemption has a covenantal framework. Thus, the biblical covenants provide the entire substructure to the plot line of scriptures. You guys know what tectonic plates are? Basically, that's how the covenants work with the scriptures. Holding the whole plot line of the, the scripture. So, for example, Gentry and Wellen, they say, the Bible presents a plurality of covenants that progressively review our triune God's one redemptive plan for His one people, which reaches its fulfillment and terminus 
in Christ and the new covenant. Each biblical covenant then contributes to God's unified plan and to comprehend the whole counsel of God. And they, they go on to say, Through the progression of the covenants, we come to know God's glorious plan, how all God's promises are fulfilled in Christ and applied to the church at God's new covenant and new creation people, and how we are to live as God's people today. So, basically, we could say that the covenants are the backbone of the narrative of the Bible. The backbone. And I think about the backbone. That's a wonderful illustration also for the covenants because the backbone is what you have in your back, right? The spinal cord. And the spinal cord, your backbone, is connected to your brain. And that's what gives all the movements into your body. The, what they call the central nervous system. The central nervous system controls most functions in your body. So... One medical document says the spinal cord is the highway for communication between the body and the brain. When the spinal cord is injured, the exchange of information between the brain and other parts of the body is disrupted. So similarly, if you think about the covenants, if you have a problem in understanding the covenants, you have a problem with this highway in understanding God's revelation. And that's exactly true. So... We must understand and grasp the importance of the covenants throughout the scriptures that will empower us, enable us to behold the beauty of God's one plan of salvation. And I would say, and I'm not the only one, but most scholars believe that there are six major covenants. Of course, there are other covenants in the Bible, but these ones are the six major covenants that will sustain the drama of redemption, okay? Those are the six major covenants that will sustain the drama of redemption. So you have a covenant with creation or Adam, the covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant at Sinai, the covenant with David, and then the new covenant. And each one you have a head or a mediator, right? a mediator, one who stands in between. So you have Adam, Adam, Noah, Abraham, and you have Moses, David, and Jesus. They are the covenant heads. And each covenant provides further divine assurance that God will fulfill His purposes. And there is a progression in these covenants, and each covenant builds on the previous one. That's very important. Because sometimes we think that the covenants are not related to each other. But no, the covenants, are, they are all interconnected okay that's very important to understand most people believe oh there are two covenants the covenants of work the covenants of grace I disagree with that I think that there is one plan of redemption and this plan is revealed through different covenants that's how God works one plan of salvation manifested through different covenants so uh, Gentry and Wellam, they write, God's unified plan unfolds through the covenants, ultimately terminating and culminating Jesus in the new covenant. Our triune God has only one plan of redemption, yet we discover what that plan is as we trace His salvation work through the biblical covenants. Each and every biblical covenant contributes to that one plan. 
Jason DeRouche, he has a very good book. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's an Old Testament survey. Actually, the name of the book is, I have here, uh, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, a Survey of Jesus' Bible. And there he has this kind of this diagram because he compares the covenants to an hourglass. And it's very interesting to see how the covenants are connected and descending until it finds its culmination in Christ Jesus. And at the same time, you see the whole Bible is structured around these covenants. Okay? So, as we talk about covenants, you might ask, so covenant is the major theme of the Bible. Uh, and that's an important question. What is the major theme of the Bible? If, if somebody was, to, was going to ask you, Okay, in one sentence, can you please summarize the Bible with one sentence? How would you summarize the, the message of the Bible? Can you do that with one sentence? So many scholars believe that there is not one theme that holds the whole Bible together. Actually, there are many themes. So many scholars believe now we, we cannot find just one center or one mega theme or the theme of themes like the holy of holies you, you cannot have just one there are just many themes and there's no way to put them together so and we know that there are many themes throughout the bible for example we have creation monotheism a god who is trinity kingdom of god that's a massive theme throughout the scriptures temple Kings, priests, prophets, sin, marriage, idolatry, adultery, together, slavery, exodus, exile, and so on. There are so many themes that keeps repeating, that they keep repeating throughout the scriptures. And that's when some people will say, no, they, that's just impossible to have one theme. I humbly disagree. I think that there is one theme that keeps the whole storyline of the Bible together. And that is... The covenantal presence of God. I would argue that God making a way for man to dwell with him through covenants is the main theme of the scriptures. I believe that the all other themes will find its cohesion, its connection to this concept of God. And I have right here, God ma making a way through covenants for his people to dwell with him. I believe that's the major theme of the scriptures. And you see, it, it would be similar to a, to a spider web. And you have the, the center and it starts spreading. So that would be kind of the, this major theme. God making a way for man to dwell with him through covenant. That's, and then it spreads. Then you have temple, you have priests, you have kings. Why? Because that's through the, his kingdom. The temple for his dwelling presence. Priests, how to live with this God. So sacrifices, all these other things. But you notice you have covenants and dwell with Him. That's very important because basically the purpose of the covenant is to have a relationship, right? You have a covenant with someone in order to have a relationship, to dwell with someone. So here's how Timothy Ward, and I think... Someone had asked for a definition of covenant. So he, he, here's how he defines Timothy Ward's. He defines covenants as following. As the scripture develops, it becomes clear that the primary form in which God works for the redemption of humanity from the curse of sin and death is through his establishment of the covenant. 
A covenant, of course, is at a heart a relationship established by means of the uttering of a promise. There is a promise. Uh, Thomas Reiner, he defines biblical covenant as a chosen relationship in which two parties make, bi make binding promises to each other. That's all part of a covenant. You have oaths, you have promises. They unite the two together. And I believe that the best illustration is the covenant of marriage to illustrate God's covenant. And I, I say that because the scriptures tell us that. Paul tells us that God created marriage to do what? To show us His covenant with His people. So, for example, in marriage, I have here, marriage is a powerful illustration of the nature of God's covenant. There is a solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. Two parties are brought into a special relationship. There are promises and obligations. There is union. And I like what Gentry and Wellam, they write, at the heart of the covenant, then, is a relationship between par parties characterized by faithfulness and that Hebrew word, hesed. Well, they say, loyalty in love. So think about we read in Revelation 21, Revelation 22, and how does the new covenant is ultimately fulfilled, but with the groom and the bride dwelling together. And you think through, that, that's the picture of Adam and Eve, and God prepares a place for them, and He brings them to dwell with Him in Eden. So we start seeing, that I think this, Illustration of marriage is a, a very good one to understand covenant. Because that's what God himself tells us. So uh, another thing that's important for us to keep in mind is, cause some people are going to say, oh, well, God is everywhere, so what do you talk about this relationship, this special relationship? Isn't God everywhere? And that's what we, we talk about. Yes, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere because of his power and his wisdom. The fact that He's God, He's omnipresent. Amen? But we also know that He's, even though He's omnipresent, there are very specific places in the Bible where He chooses to dwell, where He's not dwelling the same way in other places. Right? So, for example, Eden is very different. There is no place like the Garden of Eden, where God is dwelling with men. God brings Noah to Mount Ararat. It's a very specific place where Noah is worshiping God through sacrifices. Mount Zion, the tabernacle, the sites where the patriarchs would offer offerings to the Lord. Those are very peculiar places, even though God is omnipresent. Think about Moses. Was Moses removing his sandals by every bush that he walked by? There was one special and very specific bush where he removed his sandals. Why? Because God's covenantal presence was right there. The same thing applies to God being the God of all humanity. In one sense, God is... He's the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. Therefore, everybody is somehow connected to God. 
Is everybody connected to God in the same way? No. So even though you can think, yes, everybody somehow is in a, in, in a covenant relationship with God because of Adam, the covenant head. But many are in a relationship of judgment, not in a relationship of blessing. It's a unique group of people that he chooses to, to make a covenant. So God is omnipresent, but he demonstrates a particular kind of relational presence that is covenantal in nature. So, for example, David says in, David, in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are also there. There is no way to escape him. Paul tells the Gentiles, God hating. In him we move and live. And have our being. Meaning God as the creator sustains all creation. And yet we know. That's not the same. His face is not shining the same way towards everyone. So Isaiah explains to us why. Look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Isaiah says, Behold the Lord's hand is not shortened. They cannot save. Or his ear, though, they cannot hear. The problem is not with the Lord. But your iniquities have made a separation between and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. The problem is not with God, the problem is with sin. That's why Isaiah is saying. Sin separates men from God's covenantal presence of joy and blessing, his face shining with goodness and grace. That's what sin does. And this theology goes back all the way to where? Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Sin causes what? Separation. Exile. No longer dwelling in that wonderful place of relationship between God and man. So, starting in chapter 3 of Genesis, we have the story of the Bible being developed. And that is, the glorious drama of redemption is our triune Lord making a way through covenants for a people to dwell in His presence and behold His glorious face. That's for me the great theme of the Scriptures. When a scholar says, life with God in the house of God, this was the original goal of creation of the cosmos, and which then becomes the goal of redemption, the new creation. And I was glad I'm not the only one. You might say, that's kind of weird. You're probably the only No, there are scholars who hold the same position. I was very glad to see Michael Morales. He writes, entering, entering the house of God to dwell with God, beholding, glorifying, and enjoying Him eternally is the story of the Bible. The plot that makes sense of the various acts, persons, and places of its pages. The deepest context for its doctrines. For this ultimate end, the Son of God shed His blood and poured out His Spirit from on high, even to bring us into His Father's house, in Him as sons and daughters of God. That's 
the theme of themes in the scriptures. So, as we think about this covenantal structure in order to bring God's people into his presence, let's just briefly trace this story through the scriptures. So think about Genesis, creation. And God is very peculiar in creating one very specific place for Adam and Eve. They're like zoom lenses focusing in the creation and the establishment of the Garden of Eden. And God, like a husband and king, brings Adam and Eve to dwell with him in that wonderful place, that wonderful temple, the Garden of Eden. And they are in a covenant. God has promises, blessings. Adam and Eve, they have responsibilities as in a covenant. They must obey. They must fulfill their duties as covenant partners. But what happens in this story? They stop listening to the Lord. And they listen to the serpent. Right? Sin enters. Their relationship is completely broken. They're hiding from God. Hiding from His presence. They don't want to be in His presence because they know that that presence is holy, is glorious. And then God starts to the process of exile. Sends them away. Do you remember what He places at the entrance of Eden? What does the Lord place at the entrance of Eden? Yes, to cherubim, guarding the entrance. And from there, we start seeing just a development. And that's getting from bad to worse. That's the story of Genesis. People getting farther and farther from the presence of God. Sin increases. Genesis chapter 6 and the Lord in His mercy, because He had made a promise of sending a seed, the seed of the woman, instead of destroying all humanity, what does He do? Genesis 6. What do we have in Genesis 6? Noah. Flood. God upholds His covenant in creation, and now He brings Noah to be this covenant mediator in order to preserve the line from where the seed will come to restore what was broken in the Garden of Eden. Noah, similar to Adam, same mandate, be fruitful, multiply. The Lord brings Noah just like Adam into a mountain where he worships God. But just like Adam, he also is a covenant breaker. And sins just get worse. You start reading Genesis, it culminates with the Tower of Babel. Right? Tower of Babel, disaster. God spreads people all over the place. Farther and farther from His presence. And the solution of restoring comes with one man. Genesis 12. What is that? Abraham. A covenant with Abraham in order to bless the people and bring them into relationship with him once again. That relationship that was broken in Eden. And starting with 
Abraham, we start noticing a pattern. As God is making this covenant, he starts declaring, I am your God, I am with you. So the same is repeated to Isaac and Jacob. How does Genesis end? Where are they at? Where are they at? Egypt. And in Egypt. Prepare us for the exodus. Amen? And the Lord calls Moses. And look at Mo the Lord tells Moses. I will take you to be my people. He's speaking like to, to Israel through Moses. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your what? God. The covenantal promise and declaration of bringing a people to himself. We have the Exodus, majestic. Chapter 19, 20, God starts His covenant, official covenant with Israel. There is the construction of the temple, the husband dwelling with his bride. They have a meal together. The temple, the tabernacle, where God is dwelling. And there was an object inside the tabernacle that represented God's presence. Do you remember what object was that? What object was that? The Ark of what? The Covenant. Covenant and Presence. The Ark of the Covenant symbolizing what? God's presence. I think I have here Exodus chapter 25. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give, shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two, what? Ah, where was the, other, the last place we heard about two cherubim? Where was that at? Eden, guarding what? God's presence, Right? So here it is, the two cherubim. And you're going to find two cherubim when we come to Jesus' tomb. His burial. So he says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is declared to be God's footstool. That's His presence, connecting Him to earth. Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. When they go to war, what do they bring? The Ark of the Covenant, why? Because you have the king, the general, going with them into battle. His presence there, His covenantal presence with them. Think about even the structure of the tabernacle and the camp of Israel. They all picture this glorious covenantal relationship with God in the center. Even you think, just reflecting about the tabernacle when you have the menorah, the lampstand. And the lampstand is placed in a position where its, its lights are shining upon the twelve loaves of bread. That's Israel. So we have the presence of God and Israel together. That's the purpose inside the tabernacle. God's people dwelling with God in His presence. Going back all the way to Genesis. So the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the dominating concern 
as well as the rest of the Bible, is the way in which humanity may come to dwell in the house of God. Under the Old Covenant, the Lord prepares the tabernacle or the temple. You think about Leviticus. You have Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus is right in the center. What is Leviticus all about? How to dwell with God. Now that God has established his tabernacle among his people, how can we live with this God? That's what Leviticus is all about. How to abide in his presence. So, not only that we move, God makes a covenant with David. A covenant that speaks of a permanent place of worship. As a beautiful covenant, there is a dynasty, a house. Do you remember David wants to build a house for God? And God said, no, no, I'm going to build a dynasty, a house for you. There's the promise of a son, of a house. And we know that this, the history of Israel repeats the history of Adam. Like Adam, Israel fails to be obedient to God's covenant. And then what happens to Israel? Just like Adam, they were in a land flowing with milk and honey, just like an Eden. But they were. They disobey the covenantal word of Yahweh. As an adulterous wife, they go after idols. And what does Yahweh do? Exile. Exile. Away from my presence. And then you have the prophets. And the prophets declare that a new covenant will come. A better covenant. Because there will be a better cov covenant mediator. And that's what the prophets speak about. And then we come to the New Testament. And the Gospels are this beautiful bridge showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the New Covenant. Think about Matthew. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy to whom? Abraham and David. Covenantal heads in the Old Testament. To show how Jesus is the fulfillment. The New Covenant right here. Luke traces us back all the way to Adam, the other covenant head. And then Paul and the letters teach us how to be this new creation, dwelling with God, not only dwelling with God, but in Christ now, how to be this new creation. How are, how are we to live in the presence of this glorious God who has made a covenant with us and brought us into his home? And now he's dwelling with us and within us. That's the rest of the New Testament. And then Revelation ends how? The final fulfillment of this covenant, the consummation of this covenant with God's people dwelling with God, just like in Eden, but I would say a much better Eden. Okay? So you see, for me, that's the, the, the plot of the, the scriptures. And you see this dependence of covenants and the relational covenantal presence of God, the Lord working through the covenants to bring a people to dwell with Him. But I would say that the heart. And here is important. The heart of the theology of the covenant is the Lord's promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. What is the heart of the covenant? What is the heart of the covenant? This relationship between God and his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heart of the covenant.
So we see with Abraham, the Lord tells him, I am your God. He repeats that to Isaac, I will be with you and I will bless you. To Jacob, behold, I am with you. Think about the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus chapter 6. The Lord says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall be that I and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Or Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. That's the heart of the covenant. God dwelling with his people. We also see with David. The Davidic covenant contains the same promise. And I have been with you, David, wherever you went. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then the new covenant has the same promise. That's the heart of the covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Or Zechariah 8, 8. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be what? Their God. Then the book of Revelation ends with the same covenantal promise and blessing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then John continues, he says, And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And what is the inheritance? I will be his God, and he will be not my people, but my son, because in Christ Jesus. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, the, the beauty of this covenantal structure of the Bible is in order to bring us into a relationship in dwelling with God in His presence. So, once again, Michael Morales, he says, The covenant structure driving redemptive history has one aim, for God's people to be planted on the mountain of God so they may dwell in His house and gaze upon His beauty forever. That's the goal of redemption. Not that you might have a happy life here, but you dwell with God forever. It's moreover precisely this, this aim that generates all of the dramatic tension in the biblical drama that plummets one into the perplexing dilemma of how a holy God can abide among a sinful people bent upon rebellion. Oh, and that lifts us up the soul into the mystery of a divine love that opens that way. That's the story of the Bible. And I want to finish just giving one example. And I want you to turn there to Psalm 23. I think Psalm 23 is a beautiful, beautiful illustration of the story of the Bible. Sad how superficial we, we take this psalm. It's a profound psalm. It's a psalm of Exodus. 
It's a psalm of deliverance. And he opens by saying, Yahweh. What is Yahweh but the covenantal name of the Lord? Yahweh is my what? My shepherd. We usually think of shepherds, and I have heard people saying, Oh, shepherds, they're poor and worthless. And yes, there was a sense later on that shepherds were not considered as good witness. But in the ancient times, when we were hearing about shepherds like that, it's kings. Kings were called shepherds because they would shepherd their people. So when he says, Yahweh is my shepherd, he's truly saying, Yahweh is my king. And he's putting down all other kings. All other kings are not the true shepherd, like Yahweh. And that takes us back all the way to Exodus. Because in Exodus, that's the first time that we hear about God being described as a shepherd. So keep one finger there and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. That's important for you to see that. As they cross the sea and they sing the wonderful hymn, The Lord is a warrior. Look at verse 13. Exodus 15, verse 13. You have led, just like a shepherd. That's a shepherd. You have led in your steadfast love, in your said, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your what? Holy abode, your holy dwelling. Go back. Psalm 23. You see, he's deriving this metaphor all the way back from the first Exodus. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If you're taking notes, you can write down Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. How the Lord provided for all their needs in the wilderness. They lack nothing. Deuteronomy 2, 7. They lack nothing. Because Yahweh was their shepherd, guiding them. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He leads... Me besides two waters, he restores my soul. Remember, just very similar to the language of Exodus. You have led you, you have led in your you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Same thing. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then he says, Here's the the painful journey before arriving at the dwelling place. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? What? What does he say? Oh, what language is that? Covenantal language. I'll be with you. I am your God. You are my people. I don't fear because I know the covenant-keeping God that I have. You are with me. And your, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says, You prepare a table before me 
in the presence of my enemies. As he goes through this Exodus-like journey, the covenantal Lord is with him, guiding him through this dangerous and hard and, and deadly places, and he fears no evil because he knows the covenantal Lord that he has. You are with me. You are with me. And do you know what he does? Because they are in a covenant, they can have a meal together. That's the, the greatest sign of a covenant relationship, is when you'd have a meal with someone. That's why we used to have meals at weddings. Now we don't have any more in America. Right? Because that's part of the celebration, a meal to celebrate this covenant. That's what we do in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup, they symbolize. I know people sometimes keep arguing the elements that we have. Why it's grape juice? Stop! It's a symbol of a meal that we are having because of the covenant that we have with Yahweh. Start losing track in minutia of the beauty of the reality. And that's exactly, he's in the presence of his enemies, and he's not feared, actually he's having a meal with his Lord. That's exactly what takes place when you have the Lord's Supper here. We have all our enemies outside us, and he says, if I care, let me enjoy my meal with my king. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then it's beautiful. Surely, certainly, goodness and mercy, hesed. That's the hesed, the covenantal faithfulness of the Lord. Will pursue me. Will pursue me for the rest of my life. You are so faithful. And your loyalty, what we call loving kindness, will keep hunting me down, pursuing me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And where does the exodus end? Where does this journey end, brothers and sisters? Where does this journey end? Look at the last verse. I cannot hear you. In the house of the Lord forever. Forever. The Exodus leads us to where? To a prosperous America? To the house of the Lord forever. The covenant Lord leads us through the exile into an Exodus in order to bring us to His presence. Now turn with me. That's the goal of creation and redemption. The shepherd rescuing his sheep, carrying the sheep through, the, through this exodus and bringing his sheep into the dwelling place in order to enjoy him forever. So now turn with me to Revelation chapter 7 and we finish right here. Revelation chapter 7. And here you see the New Testament counterpart of Psalm 23. Starting verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these 
clothed in white robes. And from where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Right? That's how John opens, partners in the tribulation. And they are in Christ, the one who went through the greatest tribulation ever. Those are the ones who pass through the valley of the shadow of death, guided by the shepherd. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, where are they at right now? Before the throne of God. And they serve Him day and night where? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's right here. Day and night, forever, serving Him in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Green pastures, till waters. The, sh the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And here is the beauty. The Lamb who is the shepherd. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne will be what? That's, will be their God, but changes to will be their shepherd, the covenantal language. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, every Sunday, every church gathering, we taste that. That's what we taste in our gatherings. Dwelling with God in His holy abode. That's why all of you I, I, I hear often coming from you. It's so relieving coming to church. It's so good to come to church. Do you know why? Because you get a glimpse of reality. You get a taste of what's to come. That's what takes place every time we assemble. We get a taste of eternity, dwelling in the presence of God, hearing His voice, praising Him, dwelling with His people. And that's the only way for God's people to be sanctified. How can we be sanctified? But by dwelling with the Holy One. Basking under His face that's shining upon us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we stand in humility, in adoration, in reverence that you, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, the sovereign ruler of the whole universe would in grace and mercy Prepare a plan to rescue us from our sins and from the wrath to come and bring us into your holy dwelling place. Thank you for this beautiful, glorious plan of making a way for us to dwell with you. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for coming, dwelling with us, tabernacling among men and opening the way for us to enter the Holy of Holies. 
Help us never to lose sight of how amazing, how glorious, how majestic this truth is. That we are in a covenant with you. And we dwell right now and we will dwell forever in your presence. And there is no better place to be than being with your people at your house, worshiping you. So help us. Help us to treasure these moments that are preparing us for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.